Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Justin the Food Entrepreneur's Podcast. I'm Justin Bizarro. I'm your host. That's B-I-Z-Z-A-R-R-O. For anyone who's out there, you can find us on Instagram at Justin the Food Entrepreneur's or listen to us on Spotify or anywhere else you grow yourself through podcasts. So I'm very excited today. I'm going to tee up this episode before I introduce our guest just a little bit and talk about just branching out um reaching out and expanding your mind as an entrepreneur, as a human, and especially through food. We can we cross borders, we cross boundaries, we expand our mind when we get out of our comfort zone. And particularly in the United States where we're such a huge country and most people don't leave and get the exposure to the rest of the world, it's important that we understand that food is that median, as we just talked about um, with the guest and I beforehand before I introduced them. And the the thing about it is food entrepreneurs or food in general, like I can go anywhere and break bread with anyone and have a conversation with anyone and our commonality is enjoying food. Our commonality is maybe family values. Most of the time as food entrepreneurs, we share very strong common family values and business values. And so there's things like that that I'm that it doesn't matter where we are or what part of the world we're in or what our economic and political situation is. As entrepreneurs, we're all battling to build businesses and have our food uh, enjoyed by the world and bring families together around food or make an impact or whatever it is, uh, provide for our family, create dreams and jobs for other people, so on and so forth. I could keep going. And so with that being said, I'm going to tee up this episode because I love the conversation that we had before we started this episode. So Ezeldine Bukhari of Sacred Cuisine out of Bethlehem, Palestine. How are you doing today? Alhamdulillah, I'm doing great. I'm actually in Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem, but yeah, I'm, I'm still sorry. in Palestine. Jerusalem, I'm no sorry. No worries. Jerusalem, I'll have to fix no. that on my notes. <laughs> but... I appreciate the correction. And so that's even better. So now I have a Bethlehem episode and a Jerusalem episode. I'm like a little bit. Those are my trophies, guys. Like I like experiencing new places, new cities, talking to people. And when I travel, I actually eat my way through cities. The museums and stuff are important to me, but I get a lot more depth of the culture from the humans that live there and the entrepreneurs I meet when I go to places, particularly in food, because... Uh, it's where everyone knows and you if you go off the tourist traps or the touristy areas you get some of the best food and you meet some of the coolest people and you actually understand how everyone lives and how much in common you have so let's talk about your story let's talk about your story in jerusalem i'm sorry about that again you you corrected me today also and i apologize about that Um, But let's talk about your story. How did you become an entrepreneur? How did Sacred Cuisine come up? And how in Jerusalem did you get your start? Uh, To be honest, the story started in the United States of America because I lived uh, over there for seven years. And that was the first time I discovered my passion for cooking. Uh, Missing uh, hummus, uh, our food uh, that I grew up eating, uh, especially the hummus and falafel. I was really missing it when I I moved to United States. uh, And uh, I was in Arizona at the time and I couldn't get good uh, hummus and falafel. So out of frustration, uh, because I couldn't get it uh, in good quality, how I am used to uh, 
you know, growing up eating it, I started to make it myself and I found the process of cooking. It's really meditative and I connect with it. And at the, and the same time, it's got artistic approach uh, and uh, chemistry. And it really made me fall in love with cooking and food. And I decided uh, from that moment to pursue and make it my career. Yeah, so let's talk about this a little bit. Like, why did, I mean, was it always, I just, I guess you came to the United States, it was never your intent to be a cook or open a restaurant or gain that experience over here. So it's like God, for lack of a better term, opened up this door for you, right? Exactly. It was not even in the plan. I didn't even know that I like to cook. (laughs) So that was uh, surprising. And it was something that's obviously been instilled in you because you you picked it up so quickly and it's like a seed that was planted. It just needed to be watered. And so I love this. So when you came to the United States, did the did you was there influence other than the food? I mean, let's talk about the difference. Actually, let me just rewind back because I have a lot of thoughts going on. I'm very excited right now. But it's um, when you came to the United States, was there did the entrepreneurial environment influencing you? I mean, how did you then you're making your own food and you're you're making your own uh, falafel, I think you said, and hummus. And uh-huh. like you're just making it at home. Did you create a business here? Did people enjoy it here? Like how did you then get the idea like I'm going to go back to Jerusalem and I'm going to do this? I start to cook and invite my friends and my American friends, my Middle Eastern friends who live in the United States, like, uh, and everybody will try my food and tell me like, hey, you should open a restaurant. You come in here to this country. What you're going to do? I think restaurant is something you're good at. Your food is great. So actually people telling me that it is, I start to, to think about it. Uh, and uh, that was like the spark. Uh, so I start to cook. Uh, I start to work in restaurants. I really uh, uh, like give a thought to it. And I was like, if I want to open a restaurant, at least I should work in a restaurant. I never worked in restaurants before. My uh, background was in marketing and sales. So I was in the office working with computer and uh, customers uh, through phone and such. Uh, So uh, I never even worked in a restaurant. So I was like, let's work in the restaurants. And when I start to work in restaurants in the United States of America, I really enjoy also working in the restaurant uh, beyond cooking because I think there are two different things. It's different to cook at home than cooking in at the restaurant. So I really enjoyed uh, the aspect of the food business and uh, having a restaurant. And I, I took on myself to go and learn as much as I can. And I worked in a different restaurant, in a different establishment, from a food truck uh, to a stand, uh, to a restaurant, uh, from American food, Italian, Middle Eastern, uh, Mexican. Uh, so I really in uh, pursue uh, every opportunity I could so I can improve my skills or get my skills uh, to be developed uh, in the food business and restaurants. So this is an interesting thing, and I like this a lot. Like you want to get into something, you realize you don't have the skill, and you're like, before I can do the restaurant on my own or be in the food business on my own, I need to expose myself to much of the food business as possible. And I agree with this a lot, um, actually, in the exposure to the food business and the restaurant business. And even now, at 43 years old, as Justin Bizarro, like I'm, I really expose myself to the food delivery business because that's booming here in the United States mm-hmm. and it's really making an impact. And I'm heavily like 
okay, I'm going to go try this because I want to understand like it's literally the new floodgate and control and gatekeeper in the United States in terms of business. Like if you are too busy, they're like, yeah, we're not, you're going to the bottom of the list. You're not getting any more business. Where stereotypically as entrepreneurs, we would get flooded with business and we just have to figure it out as we went. We didn't have a gatekeeper or a floodkeeper to keep our business um, throttled for lack of a better term, but I don't want to get into that right now. Um, so, Tell me about the experience you learned from the food trucks. Like, what are the core things that you realize that if you're going to open up your own restaurant that you need to carry on? What do you learn um, at first? Like, what are the main things that you're like, oh, I didn't know this, or this is something I need to carry with me? Uh, I found out to be a unique, you know, uh, to have something uh, of your own. Uh, even though I still uh, cook, uh, you know, traditional food, uh, but also I have my own twist and I have my own creation of a creation uh, of cooking the traditional. It's either can be in the presentation, in the way, but there is something uh, that's uh, usually, especially in food, uh, usually people are appreciate and they will go for. And sometimes it's like that style, that character, something unique beyond uh, just the normal uh, dish. So I think uh, this is was the most uh, eye-opening is uh, if you are unique and you have something of your own creation, you know, something that you uh, put uh, together uh, in your own way and style, uh, I found out this is to be the core and the gym, uh, which you're going to hold uh, as far as your quality and what you stand for. And I, I love this because one of the things, like, let's talk about what is traditional Palestinian food. Like, how would you describe it? Because I don't think m most of the audience understands it because they're not from Palestine or of Palestinian background. So part of what I want to do is expose everyone to what this cuisine is like or what the difference is and the commonality between sort of the Middle Eastern cuisine and stuff like that in the Mediterranean because I'm Italian and Greek and, you know, we all kind of share some similarities like anise in our alcohol and stuff like that, um, that are commonality. Nice, yeah. But, um, so let's talk about that. So, uh, Palestinian food uh, is also the food of the Middle East. A lot of the food that we share, such as hummus, uh, falafel, uh, uh, other dishes, grape leaves. Uh, uh, there is many dishes we share, but each region also they have uh, their own. So in Palestine, we have some dishes that's we contributed to the Middle East, uh, and it's part of the Levant cuisine, uh, which is, uh, for example, makluba. Makluba is one of our most famous national dish. Uh, it's a dish that's get cooked in a weekly basis, uh, and this dish is made out of rice and deep fried eggplant usually and cauliflower some people can add other uh, vegetables and also some chicken and uh, the way we serve it which make it iconic and make it stand uh, stand more than any other dishes is because we cook like a big pot of rice and this vegetables then we flip that pot uh, on top of a tray and you have the makluba standing like a cake of rice with the uh, uh, vegetables uh, 
the eggplant and cauliflower and the chicken. And it's a dish that can feed a lot of people. So you always find it uh, in uh, in big gathering uh, and such. And this is one of our most icon dishes. Another dish, uh, which what we call is msakhan. It's made on a whole wheat bread baked in a taboon oven, which is a special oven made of a hay and a clay. And there is a stones on the bottom. So it's, the bread have this rocky uh, texture into it, and then we top it with onion and sumac. Sumac is a spice uh, in the Middle East that we use, also in Iran, uh, Lebanon, and such, and it gives some sour flavor. It's purplish, it's a very beautiful color, and it's have a very unique flavor. And this dish, msakhan, it's made basically out of this bread, out of onion, the sumac as a spice, and olive oil. Uh, and uh, also a chicken. Uh, and these two dishes, I would say, they are the most iconic dishes of the Palestinian cuisine. It's really cool because I think that uh, while I see the similarities, I also see the things that make it unique. And let's talk about your quiz. Well, let's talk about your journey in general. So, I mean, now you're in Palestine. You've, you've learned a lot of this stuff, the cooking techniques and stuff like that and the food. Um, and like, or what it means to be a restaurateur, I guess, and an entrepreneur. So how do you decide that you're going to go back to Jerusalem and do this? Uh, I decided to, to go back, uh, for actually family, uh, reasons. Uh, and, uh, when I decided, I knew at that time I want to open my own, uh, business. I decided at that time I want to open my own, uh, restaurant, uh, business, uh, and then I was like, if I'm going to move, I will just do it in Palestine. So I came here. I uh, Actually, I started communication business uh, for some time to kind of able me to collect money to start uh, the business, uh, the restaurant business. Uh, and then I did it uh, for some time. Uh, and then uh, I was unable really to pull the amount of money to open a restaurant, but I was so eager to start the food business. And from there, I came and adopt the idea of pop-up uh, restaurant, uh, pop-up uh, kitchen, basically. Uh, and I start to cook uh, at people's houses and organization and just like sell food in a music venue and such. So I, ad I adapt that concept because I didn't have the capital to start a restaurant. Um, and this is what, uh, I, through this, I was able to create Sacred Cuisine. And through Sacred Cuisine, uh, I do different services, uh, such as a food tour, which I take people around the old city of Jerusalem, show them where I grew up eating and shopping for food, and share with them some of my favorite. Uh, and it's basically utilizing the shops uh, that's around. Uh, it is not like uh, my food and such. I just want to share my culture uh, and the food of my uh, country. And also I do cooking classes and a private chef. Uh, so uh, at the end, uh, this has became uh, my passion, uh, pursuing for open a restaurant. It got translated in a pop-up concept and I end up with Sacred Cuisine, which is five years old. This is really cool, and I really like this because it. You, I mean, were our pop were pop ups common in Jerusalem as you came back? Is was the trend there like it was in the United States? Because I know pop ups started trending here about 
maybe five, six years ago, especially before COVID, and then COVID, it really took off. Was it the same in Jerusalem? Actually, pop-up concept, it's still something not really uh, kicking in, uh, and that's why at the beginning, uh, when I started, everybody was confused, like, how are you going to start a business without, like... Uh, to go to people, places, yeah. and establishment. How a restaurant going to host you when he's cooking food himself? You know, so it was uh, confusing. And uh, it was a concept that uh, I heard about it uh, just recently. Then I looked it up and uh, I just like, through this concept, I was really able to embody the spirit of entrepreneur. And the spirit of entrepreneur, I believe, is finding solution. You know, I'm like, okay, I'm so eager. I want to work in the restaurant. I cannot wait for another few years to start my restaurant then i found this concept i looked it up and i found how i can adjust me as my business my idea into this concept because i found it to be efficient and thanks god i found this uh, concept because in in corona otherwise i will be dead now you know i will be having a restaurant after two years corona kick in um I have to pay all these bills. There is no money. And I think, I believe that I will be dead now if I had a restaurant or any any type of establishment. Yeah. And I mean, Corona, the coronavirus did like a lot of damage to the restaurant businesses here and entrepreneurs here. So I can't, I agree with you, the opportunity to not have been in that situation or be starting out like the first two years of business are so important. Like if that (laughs) would have happened during Corona, that would have been terrible. So I really like what you're doing, and I really like um, the Thank twist you. on it. So, let's talk a little bit more about like what is what are your favorite dishes? What are the favorite dishes that you enjoy eating, and what are the favorite dishes that you enjoy creating? Uh, like eating from the Palestinian food. Yeah, that Palestinian uh, like food. The- yep, in yeah. general. And then let's talk about what you enjoy cooking and and giving to people as part of your culture. Uh, I really uh, love hummus. Hummus is like uh, something I'm not sick of. I keep it uh, almost in every day. I do food tours, so always I eat it with my customers, uh, but I cannot get enough of it. It's like a truly something uh, that's always uh, been a highlight. Uh, and and even though hummus is a breakfast food for us, uh, it's still uh, always something that's... Uh, my most favorite, I would say. <laughs> That's interesting. It's a breakfast food. We eat it for like snack and dessert and lunch and dinner. I don't think most Americans eat it as breakfast, if any. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I get this question a lot and people that are like really surprised uh, to know it's a uh, breakfast food. Uh, the other dish I really like is makluba. Makluba is like unbeatable. Uh, the rice with the eggplant, especially uh, it is uh, some like very comfort food for us, and uh, anytime uh, I will go for makluba, I won't mind. <laughs> well, an eggplant to me is just such a great product. Uh, I'm Italian, and I guess maybe this is like part of the Mediterranean nope. thing. I don't know why, but we don't eat enough eggplant in America at all. Like it's never in our cuisine anywhere. Like where is it? Why isn't in there? Because it. It's almost like such a good base of any product, almost like carrot, celery, and onions to me. And it's like, and it absorbs flavor, and it also gives flavor, and it also can be, you know, grilled. It can be oven baked. It can be, you can actually make it crispy. And like, there's just so much to do with it. So I love this. And 
there isn't we never talk about eggplant anymore and i don't even see it in the grocery store here in america anymore actually which is weird since covid i've not seen one eggplant in the grocery store since covid that's weird now that i think about it like i'm really gonna have to think about this because i usually buy them and i haven't seen a purple eggplant in a long time and so that's an interesting weird thing that we're talking about in food because we have a lot of food disappearing here in the united states like rapidly it's like all of a sudden it's extinct and that's one of them. I haven't seen eggplant in a long time. Either way, um, let's talk about like what mm-hmm. is the food you like cooking and serving, and 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 how do you give people the true experience of Palestinian food, but also modernize it to make it exciting. So that's the thing. Uh, Sacred Cuisine as a company, when I decided to open the company, uh, it came after, you know, I told you I created like a business for communication, another business for food. I was selling like pickles and jars, uh, pickles and uh, jams. Uh, but also I didn't like it and such. And I was like, when I wanted to create sacred cuisine, I was like, okay, let's think about it again. I want to start a business, but what exactly I wanted from the business. And I took the aspect of making money as a first goal out of the picture. I was like, okay, let's say I didn't make money. I didn't become rich. Let's yeah. do something that's I enjoy. Yeah. So when I decided to make it sacred cuisine, I was like, I want to take all my life, what I enjoy and put it in this end to be myself uh, so I come from a Sufi family uh, uh, which is spirituality is a big part of uh, the family uh, history and the practice so I really wanted to embody that in food which is a lot of people don't think about to, to entwine food and spirituality but uh, I really wanted to do that and that's why another reason why it's called sacred cuisine And I decided not to cook meat. Uh, I decided to make it vegetarian, uh, uh, like vegetarian. Also, I cook some uh, vegan food. And uh, that itself uh, pushed me to create certain dishes uh, with meat to be vegetarian dishes. And one of them is the msakhan. As I said, it's with the chicken. So I make my own version with eggplant and mushrooms uh, and pomegranate seeds and almonds. And uh, in this way, I take some traditional dishes, but I have my own twist on them sometimes to make them vegetarian or vegan. And I want to anchor something. I'm going to get to the twist of the cuisine, but I want to anchor, and it's why I paused for a second, is because I want to really give everyone audience time to think about something. And hopefully everyone picked up on this, like the cuisine and the vegetarian and the vegan. I'm going to talk about that, but what what we talked about, what what we said at the beginning, what Ezeldine did is he said, I remove the money from the scenario. What happens if I don't make any money at this? Am I actually going to enjoy it? Because that's the thing, guys, like the energy, the the spirituality that he just talked about, which I agree, we need to put the spirituality back into our food and our values back into our food and the, the family and and friends and peace and happiness and joy and understanding and compassion and kindness which is all related to food and like being humans we all eat we all come from many different cultures and backgrounds and compounding legacies that can be complicated and so like this is a way that we do it and i like that you said spirituality but i like mostly that you said it wasn't about the money at the beginning and i agree with you and 
at the end of the day, if I can sit down every time and I always do this and I'm like, if I don't make any money at this and it loses money, will I grow in it? Number one. And number two, will I enjoy it while I do it? And because if you don't, it's never going to make money. Sorry. Like if it's not something you can see yourself doing every day or you're not going to, if by any means, like you're just going to make enough money to get by to take care of a family, you need to get more fulfillment than just the money. And that's a true entrepreneur. Sometimes it takes 20 years before you figure it out. You need to be able to enjoy 20 years before you actually make real money. That's just the way it is. And, and so I also think that you, no matter what, and, and spirituality wise, you align with God better, however you want to look at it, when you're fulfilling God's plan, which is no matter which way we look at it, it's doing what you're doing. It's putting the spirituality in the food. It's growing humans. It's giving them an experience. It's exposing their mind. It's uh, giving them education on the world. It's also giving them experiences in the food. And so there's like three major things that I love about your business model, which is that experience, that exposure, and that education. You know, in that triangle, in a way, you're probably walking around the cities too, so you're throwing in exercise there. So those are four things, and then you have a good energy. So you got five staples there of leadership that are also in your business. Um, And then you include spirituality in there, and, you know, that's a pretty strong thing you've got going. So... Thank you. Uh, you're very welcome. And uh, I just love what you're doing. So what other dishes do you prepare? Um, what other dishes do people like in the vegetarian uh, Palestinian cuisine? We talked about the major one, but let's give a few others just because I really want people who are traveling or humans that are traveling to um, Palestine and Jerusalem and, and Bethlehem as we're getting more podcasts about it to start trying all the cuisine there but also like i want them to come see you and and come do a food tour with you because even as entrepreneurs who listen to this it's important that you see what the world's doing with two three thousand years of tradition and food and thousands of years of complications and how the values (laughs) are coming to the surface and it's important that we see it because most of the world, we don't understand it uh, the same way. And it's important that we expose ourselves to the world, to other entrepreneurs, and see the way that they're doing it. So our legacies a thousand years from now are more prepared than we are. And that's important. And if we compound it now through food and family values around food and instilling those family values as we sit down for dinner or whatever, then we have legacies. So. Anyway, let's talk about what other yeah. dishes you guys have. And you can comment on any other part of what I say also. Please feel free not – if you don't want to answer my question right away, you can also comment on my other part of it also. I don't want to just give you questions either, but it's all yours. Uh, okay. Uh, what I have uh, – another dish that is also <laughs> related to plant, which is a dear to my heart, and this dish somehow it's more known for the local and not a lot of people know about. Uh, it's called Rumaniye. Ruman in Arabic means pomegranate, and when we say Rumaniye, it's something pomegranate And this dish is actually to celebrate the pomegranate season, uh, and this dish is made of plant lentils and pomegranate uh, and uh, it's one of the dishes the combination of it and uh, the technique of it and everything about it it's very different from uh, 
like how you expect a dish, but in the same time, it it's have dill seeds and a fresh dill in it, which give it very unique flavor, especially with the pomegranate tartness and sweetness. Uh, so that's another dish uh, that is uh, popular uh, in uh, in my catering uh, and uh, in my uh, orders. And also, I really uh, enjoy cooking that dish and. Uh, Whoever have have opportunity to cook Palestinian food, uh, I go for it. I was in Turkey for cooking festival last October, and this is what I cook as to present uh, uh, the Palestinian food. Uh, one of them was the uh, what we call Romani. Very very cool. And talk to me about how. Like, let's talk about the food tour. Let's talk about how you. I mean, how. Did, how do you talk about the Palestinian food and the culture when you're on the tours? I mean, I don't need the whole tour. Obviously, we don't have four hours or whatever, um, and I'm not asking for that. But I think it's important that some I go on it. Like, I'm now, I'm like, I need to go try this tour, and I need to figure out how to get there and work through this. But one of the things is, um, like, how do you talk about the culture? How do you get people to feel... And experience the spirituality through not only the food, but as you're touring and giving people. Because I think we talked about it beforehand, and maybe I talked about it on the podcast. I can't remember. So I like eating my way through cities. Um, I think I did say it on the podcast. And so how do you do mm-hmm. that and give people the culture and the history? You know, it's through storytelling. Uh what I do is I really expose our culture, all these small details about a little plant, about a technique, uh, about a story of something happened related to that. Uh, this is how I lay it out. Uh, so uh, when I'm uh, walking next to the farmers, we are passing by the farmers, I stop by. Sometimes I have a farmers that's I shared a certain story which is relevant to something we talked about or just to grab some of what they have until uh, uh, tell the participants uh, what is this green or what's this ingredient and what we do with it and sometimes interaction will happen with the farmer I will ask her what's your favorite way of cooking it and such and I will just translate all that and uh, use the storytelling to kind of like uh, pass this information and uh, at the end it's just like uh, what I'm doing is I'm taking experiences of me growing up, other people, how we live the life in the city and allow this experience uh, to be uh, translated to the visitor uh, or to the participants. Uh, And, uh, you know, food is so interesting, you know, and something I really like about food, uh, the aspect of food history, um, uh, that's my, uh, one of my uh, passion is the food history. And through the food history, there is always something to talk about so it's like eggplant for example eggplant have nicotine in it which is uh a lot of people don't know about so uh i share all these small details to make the big picture well and let's talk about like what's your favorite like i'm gonna what's your favorite food history fact i mean you talked about the eggplant but what's like give me an example of one like what's your favorite one like if you could say like this is the one i love telling like me it's always about bees and pollination like just because i love positively pollinating the world i also have an obsession with bees and the way they do things and they vote and they have a democracy it's like a very i'm very obsessed with it even though they have a queen you'd be surprised but (laughs) but, like that's my thing so what's your thing 
my favorite is to talk about the Malo. Uh, there is uh, a family, uh, or which is a family, a Malo family, and this Malo family provides us with different types of greens. Uh, one of them we cook in Palestine here called common Malo, but other Malo a lot of people are familiar with, but in the same time they are not familiar that it's connected to the green, is the marshmallow. When I say marshmallow, what do you think of? I think of uh, the sticky thing that I put on campfire. Yeah. Exactly. And that's how it is fascinating, the food, because the marshmallow, it came to life as a remedy, as a medicine for little kids who have a throat sore. So they took the marshmallow plant which is the roots of the marshmallow and the marshmallow, all the mellow actually, they're very good for your throat, but especially the marshmallow. So they took the marshmallow roots and they cooked it and after, after, out of that they got a sap and they mix it with egg white and sugar to create the soft candy so kids can swallow it when they have a, a throat sore. Uh, and always uh, when I tell uh, this fact to the people, a lot of people are surprised and nobody know that's the marshmallow. It's a name of a plant, not a candy, actually. <laughs> and I, I did not know that. Let's just talk. And I am in the food business. Like I had this weird idea that it came from like fat or something. Like I don't know why my perspective of it was really weird, but I'm not in the candy business or the confection business ever. And I haven't ever been in it. So I guess I never really noticed it but I like that and I think that that's part of what we're talking about here is we're so we eat so much food yet we're so ignorant for lack of a better term as humans on the history of it or where it came from or why it came to be or why do we actually have bread or why do we actually you know like um certain things why in the United States don't we eat sheep or you know we eat lamb but why don't we eat sheep you know, it's like, well, you know, we overate it during World War II and no one to eat it anymore. So, like, there's things like that that's just so cool, fan, like, food history that's just so important. So, I like that a lot. I have another question for you. Like, what's your favorite memory yes. around food growing up in Jerusalem? Like, as a kid, like, I know you didn't know you were going to be a food person yet, but or a food entrepreneur, and that came later when you were in the United States, but what is your favorite memory growing up around food in Jerusalem? Around food in Jerusalem. Like maybe it's a family memory. Maybe it's an eating experience. Maybe it's yeah. the first time you tried your favorite cuisine. I don't know, but I'm just curious. To be honest with you, it's not in Jerusalem. It was in Gaza uh, because my mother, she's from Gaza. From Gaza, she's a refugee. Uh, her family a refugee to Gaza. So every summer, uh, on the summer and the school break, we will go for three months to Gaza and we will stay in Gaza. Uh, and in Gaza, they have this uh, something similar to salsa which is uh, made of tomato, green chili, uh, a, and uh, olive oil and onion. Uh, and But they put in it a dill seed because dill seeds is a really big part of Gaza kitchen. Uh, so it's like that salad that is so simple, but they make it in a clay pot and they smash it all together. And then you eat it with a pita bread. And 
just I remember every time I go to Gaza, even when I was a little kid, you know, and I'm, I wasn't like a person who is really obsessed with food, eating a lot or such. Yeah, me I'm still too. a skinny guy. Yeah, me too. I'm but, skinny, uh, but I eat a lot of food. Like, that's why I have to work out all the time because I just eat my way through everything. Go ahead, man. Sorry. Uh, no, no worries. Uh, but yeah, just uh, the salad was like so iconic. And I was remembering as a kid, I'm like, how something so simple as a salad that I crave. And every time we are going to Gaza, this is will be one of my things uh, to I cannot wait to eat my grandma, uh, what we call it, uh, which is like a tomato, onion, chili, garlic, uh, but with a lot of olive oil and a dill seeds. Uh, that sounds amazing, so actually. My, uh, and why someone hasn't created that, like, as a food trucker to go yet, and like a handheld food, like, I'm just like, you might be onto something there, actually. And because uh, <laughs> another concept for you, because that's like really sounds amazing. And I know exactly what you're talking about in that combination. And I'm like, it would be a great, like, food, like, to expose the world to. Um, that's really cool. And so let's talk about, like, like you have like such worldly experience okay like i don't know it's not a word i love i don't like the word worldly because i think it's more exposure you have a lot of exposure to the world and like your mom you mentioned that she's a refugee and i'm i but how much influence does that have on you like you see what it's like to struggle in life or to have the things or to go through what you're going through how much of this drive to be an entrepreneur and be independent is because of those sort of influences in life? Uh, that's a great question, man. Uh, to be honest with you, uh, in Palestine here, uh, refugees is uh, a lot. We have a lot of refugees just because we were evicted from our homeland. So some left the country, some other people like my mother family located uh, from a city to another city. Uh, so uh, it is something not just like unique. It's actually a, a lot of Palestinian have refugee family, if not refugee themselves. But I was like really inspired by very important aspect, which I think it shaped uh, uh, my personality and my way of thinking. Uh, Everybody talk about the freedom, you know? Everybody, I mean, a lot of people passionate about freedom. They talk about it. Everybody want to achieve a freedom. But when I really look at freedom, I found out that money can be the source of a lot of evil. And I found out that no matter how much free you are, no matter what your thoughts are, your money is show me how free you are. Because... It does not make sense that we want to change the world and we want to be free, but then we work, go and work for this big corporation, which is doing the opposite. I agree. And uh, yeah. And at the end, we talk, this is freedom. I don't care uh, what uh, my values are. I care what's my practicality, how it trickles down into action. And I found out that I cannot, I will never be free, really, if I'm getting paid by another person. Uh, so I found the ultimate freedom is to create sustainability out of you. And I found this is the most important freedom uh, aspect and this is what pushed me to really be entrepreneur uh, and to create my own business because I don't want anybody to pay me money on any type of condition uh, to be uh, a certain way or to be not myself uh, so this was the most important uh, aspect I would say that shaped the way I think 
And I love this actually. And for me, that part came later. Like I, like I was already an entrepreneur and I was already seeking the freedom. And one of the things I didn't realize fast enough is like how much, how important money is to everybody else. I just didn't realize it. I didn't realize how much people attach it to their self-worth and to their identity and to all those things. So that's one of the things as an entrepreneur I didn't see because it was always to me about making a difference. And it goes back to always what you said about providing solutions and what I call entrepreneurial ingenuity, which means I have a problem. I don't want to work for this company. I don't have enough money to go start a restaurant, but I have the entrepreneurial ingenuity to go do a pop-up or do tours or how do I start generating revenue? So that's one. And number two is um, what I'm saying on your point is the drive to not have to do things you don't want to do. And this is where, this is what people, when I say I don't like listening to anyone else or I don't want to work for anyone else and I just can't stand anyone else telling me what to do, it's, it's a little bit tongue in cheek as they would say. It's a little bit like it's true and I'm exaggerating. Okay. It's really not that that's what happens, but here's what happens. I can't work for someone that doesn't have a certain amount of moral and ethical morality in the way that they do business and the way that they handle the world and the way that they handle their families. You know, so when I see people act a certain way or go out to dinner a certain way, and those are people that, that are these filthy rich people that you work for, that doesn't appeal to me. I don't respect the behavior because, so I can't ever respect the amount of money because it wasn't earned in a way that I found morally and ethically true or whole. And that's not everyone. That's just, I agree with you. And for me, it's that. It was the spirituality question. It was the way I I feel when I deal with individuals. And as I become the second part of my, or I would call it my third entrepreneurial, the 3.0. The first was when I was a kid and mowing lawns and fruit stands and was food service partners and all those companies over the years. And now I'm at a point where I pick and choose who I do business with. And I don't care if you're mad at me and you want to go off mm-hmm. at me because I won't do business with you. You just prove that I made mm-hmm. the right decision. And what I find actually is all a lot of the individuals that claim to have similarities to me or be my friend or want to hang out with it really and they get really heavy at the beginning. Those are the individuals that tend to try to take advantage or don't have much the spirituality or are chasing the quick dollar. They want the money fast. And why won't you move faster? And what's taking you so long? And it's just like, okay, well, no, like I, it has to align in my life. Mm-hmm. I'm a spiritual person. You just can't come in and disrupt and conquer and destroy my life by your idea. If this is going to work, we have to get to know each other. There's a courting, like what are your core values? Like how do you raise your family? How like millions, how do you deal with your parents? Like I can't even go over the amount of questions that I have before I even consider going into business with someone anymore or even buying something from them or selling, even selling something to someone. Like, what are you going to do with this once you get it? Like, how are you going to represent me? Like, if it goes wrong, are you going to destroy my reputation to save your own? Like, because I think we're partners, but I need to make sure that you think we're partners too because if you need to, like, put my head on a chopping block and you're going to do it, then I'm going to be like, okay, well, I'm not going to do that to you. So this mutual, this relationship's not mutual. We're in this together, building mutual businesses together and helping each other, you know, and it's things like that. So I like what you said. 
about that. Um, what would you say are your core values or your morals and ethics or the thing you talked about, your sp- spirituality cornerstones that really anchor you in this way that give you success in the way that you're finding it now as an entrepreneur? Uh, I think, you know, equality, I would say, to provide something unique with equality that you can stand by and be, this is mine. Uh, I think uh, this, uh, basically, whatever I want to produce, whatever I want to make in my name, I make sure that it's something that I want to be associated with and I want to do it in the best way I can so it can reflect uh, what I'm thinking and what's my whole idea behind even doing all of this. So I think uh, the quality and being yourself uh, genuine uh, to do what you really would love to do without waiting for someone to tell you good job, I think uh, this is the something that's make me, no matter who's my customer, no matter where I am, it allow me to be myself in every place and every time. Yeah, I like that as well. And uh, one of the things I really want to talk about what you said is like we can, we're all so similar and food is just such a median and you had talked about it before we got on the podcast and we talked about it. Let's, I'm going to ask you the question before I go in the commentary, which is what did you mean by that? And and how and and how do you use food as a medium? We talked about it a little bit, but it's a very important part of who you are and bringing things together. So, talk to me a little bit how you do it with your family or how you do it with your business, and that you use food to unite people or bring people together. Because we talked about it as a medium. Even you and I just talking on this podcast. There's no way in a million years we would talk if we weren't both food entrepreneurs, right? And so, likely, yeah. and so. Let's talk about the median comment that you made before we got on the got on the show. Uh, I would say that, uh, for example, you know, like one of the things that I do over here, I try to minimize on using plastic. So uh, whatever I'm doing in my company, I try not to use plastic. And a lot of people confused around me because they're like, if you want to make a business, you want to cut cost. Uh, and uh, if you are replacing these plastic with bamboo or eco-friendly, it's much more expensive. Uh, why this is very important for you? And I and always with with the work I try to do, uh, I'm like it's not important the money aspect. All what I want to do is to really do what I'm thinking. And what I'm thinking is I want to contribute to this world. I want to create sustainability. I want to create abundance. But in the same time, I want to give appreciation to this universe. So it does not make sense to get food from the motherland, from the land and nutrient myself and make money out of it and feed my customer, then feed the earth plastic. Yeah, yeah, uh, we're on so, the same page. Keep going, I love this. So this is like uh, something that's uh, always, uh, I feel that's uh, there is certain value I carry myself as a responsibility. And sometimes, sometimes this value does not make sense to in, to entrepreneurs or to people 
people who make uh, money. Uh, but uh, that's the thing. It is beyond making money. It is money. It is something that we give it a value ourselves. It's not something came with a value. We associate the value of it. But the earth, it's our real treasure and our real value. And in my whole concept, I'm trying to spin on that. And I'm trying to direct at the end is like, don't thank me. Thank Mother Earth, which is provided for me to be able to do for you this food. When I, you and I are 100% on the same page on this. Like, I truly believe that we have to figure out, we have to be more diverse, meaning we have to eat more products. We have to experience more cultures and spices and plants and even animals. We have to diversify our diets so we get a more, for lack of a better term, like I said earlier, worldly view, but a more exposed view of the world to food. And and that's one. And number two is we need to stop taking from the earth in order to feed ourselves or or turning up the volume on like one product like corn, for example, or rice and hurting all the other abundance like lentils and, and all the other type of food we could try. Okay, that's that's number two. And number three is if we're going to save the planet, it's about diversification and biodiversity. Biodiversity is what compounds things throughout that give us the ability. If we ate the grass right away out of the ground, we're never going to get the same values of processing through a cow and then eating the cow meat. We're also not going to get the same value when we eat vegetables in the same combinations as we do in the United States as they do in Palestine if we're vegetarian because they use different spices. They have different ingredients. Their soil has different minerals and stuff. So we want to expose ourselves to the world and we want to get the diversity in our minerals and nutrients also, if that made sense. Because particularly here in the United States, we don't even have half the world's spices. Like you go to Turkey and go to a spice market and it blows your mind because you're like, wait a second, why don't we have all this stuff in the United States? Oh, political embargoes. Oh, that weird thing around (laughs) food that we do. And no one realizes that how much politics are played in food and our ability to eat or get food or in a lot of countries ability to even eat their own food, you know, their own cultural food and or ability to access to food for that matter. So I like this topic a lot. And I also like that I agree with you, like at the end of the day, whenever I've had individuals that have chased money or I've been in partnerships or whatever, the individuals are never happy. And don't get me wrong. I don't think there's any, you should ever be comfortable. Like you should always be growing. You should always be trying to improve. You should always be trying to improve yourself, your relationships, your friendships, whatever. But I also, you know, you can't, you have to have purpose. And if you're just chasing the money, there's never going to be enough just the way it is. Like if you're going to chase it, people that chase money, there's never enough. And and that's a bad cycle to be in because the mindset is you're, there's no reward along the way. And even though the money's coming, it's not tied the right way. The money's the trophy for doing the right thing. And what we're talking about here is doing the right thing for the environment, for the sustainability, being eco-friendly, because that is the impact and influence that sacred cuisine is going to have on the world. Like it's it's also about the experience and the family and the legacy around food, but it's also so one of the things I want to just talk about is like, and we'll get into it because I think we're running out of time. But as we tee up a part two, and I'm going to get Isaldine on um, another call because and another episode yes. because we can do a part two. But 
we're going to just talk about what happens at like we focus so much on the show and the show time and delivering the food and going to eat the food and the experience. And we leave the restaurants as consumers and we have no idea the impact we're leaving by our decisions. Are we eating at restaurants that are earth friendly? I don't know. It's a pretty important question. If you ask me, are we buying groceries at a store or from farmers that are actually investing in the environment and actually making sure our children or our children's children have an earth to live in or actually decent food to be provided that's not scientific because we ruined our food system. <laughs> so, exactly. So I'm going to leave everyone with that. I'm very excited for a part two. I love these episodes and I love getting to reach out to the world and meet people. It's my favorite thing to do. Uh, honestly, it's why I like traveling so much. So that being said, Dean, will you tell everyone where they can reach you on Instagram um, and and then I'll close out the episode and we'll get out of here. Okay, yes, I look forward for the next part. And uh, for everyone, you can reach me on Sacred Cuisine at Instagram or Facebook. Uh, and also I have a website. You can Google Sacred Cuisine and uh, you, I'm sure you will see me. And I will be very happy to have any of you in a food tour in the old city of Jerusalem. And you're Justin too, man. Yeah, I'm going to come. I'm very excited. Like I'm starting to like as the podcast stuff and I start reaching out, I'm like, I have an opportunity here to go meet people around the world and like make friends around the world and food entrepreneurs like I would have never done before. And it's like very exciting to me because like you and I have a lot in common. Like it's it's just the, the mindset, the ability to do things. And we may not have the same background, but our backgrounds are similar in our fight and our pursuit mm-hmm. and our belief in what we're doing. And more importantly, we have a similar purpose in what we're trying to do for the earth and the world and food and sustainability, or as I call regeneration, because now we're at a point where we just, we can't sustain our current level of earth. We actually need to start <laughs> regenerating it. And so, that's yeah. yeah. And so, like, I really started like thinking about this the last two years. Like, we're sustainability is we're implying the wrong thing now. Now we need to start regenerating and and building for the future. So, I love this topic, and I look forward to talking about this specifically on part two. And for the audience, you can find us at Justin the Food Entrepreneurs on Instagram. You can also find on there uh, my cell phone number. You can text us with questions, or if you want to be on the podcast. Uh, text it um, and also uh, you can find us on Spotify or wherever else you grow yourself through podcasts thank you everyone for listening in and we're out <laughs>